Well, please allow me to add my warm welcome to all those that have already been offered to you uh, this morning. Um, and like Mike, I want to wish all of you a early Merry Christmas. Uh, it's great to have you all here. I, I have to tell you that this morning my heart was especially blessed by uh, seeing the children up here singing again in our Christmas worship services. Um, it was just such a blessing to see them. I had one little girl at the end of the last service, she kind of curtsied and went, ta-da, after she got done singing. So that's how I'm going to end my sermons from now on, ta-da. Uh, but anticipating the children being a part of our worship service today, I was reminded of a story that I heard several years ago about a little boy and a little girl who were in church singing the week before Christmas, and they were singing their favorite Christmas hymn. And with all their heart, especially the little boy, was singing along, you know, Silent Night, holy night, all is come. You can just see, you know, the energy and, and, and the excitement in his, in his voice. And, and all is bright, round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly beings. Sleep in heavenly beings. And of course, no little sister is going to let him get away with that. She correctly uh, said to him, not being silly, it's sleep in heavenly peas, peas. It is fitting, I think, that this, uh, this Christmas we've chosen as our theme, uh, peace, peace, the peace of Christmas. In a world that is filled with uh, conflict and chaos and uh, division, I think peace is something that we all long for deep in our hearts and that we desperately need. And that longing for peace, it seems to me to be exceptionally emphasized and pronounced and felt during the Christmas season. If you think about it, it is the theme of most of our Christmas cards that are sent and received. It is the theme of many of our favorite Christmas carols and Christmas hymns. It is uh, that peace that we feel inside our hearts when we look at a nostalgic uh, manger scene and we see the baby Jesus lying so peacefully in the manger. And year after year, we are likewise reminded of that peace when we read Luke chapter 2 and we hear about the good tidings of great joy that was delivered by the angels to the shepherds that uh, night many, many, many years ago. Glory to God in the highest, the angel says to them in verse 14, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And how many of us over the years, I was thinking about this as Val and I watched it the other night, over the past 50 years have watched Charlie Brown Christmas and we've heard uh, Linus stand up on the stage and, and share the true meaning of an, a frustrated Charlie Brown by quoting Luke chapter two, including that angelic proclamation of Luke chapter two. So, so just a constant theme, I think, and a feeling that we feel during the Christmas holiday. But I wanna ask the question today and try to answer it. What is the peace of Christmas all about? Is it merely a festive, calm, mild, sleepy, nostalgic kind of feeling? Is that what peace is all about, a piece of Christmas? Or is it a hopeful expectation that maybe next year we'll be at more peace and less stressful than we are in this one? To help us begin to understand, I think, and better experience the peace of Christmas, I want to look at a prophecy that was stated over 700 years before the birth of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to put it up onto the screens here and read it. Would you follow along with me? Here's what the prophet Isaiah said. For to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when you hear the name Prince or the title Prince, I wonder what images come to your mind. I think for most of us, especially in this day and age, when we're bombarded by British, British politics, we often think of Prince William and Prince Harry. Or perhaps if you have children and you've watched recently uh, one of the Disney Cinderella's or something, uh, Prince Charming comes to mind. But the title Prince that we see here by the prophet given to Jesus is not a reference to some guy born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but uh, living in a, a plush uh, palace uh, that we so often romanticize in, in our fairy tales and pop culture. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated prince here is the Hebrew word sar, and it's most often used in scriptures to define or describe a military commander uh, who has power and who has authority and respect and leadership of an army. One of the best examples of that, I think, is in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And here's what we're told there. When Joshua was by Jericho, they've just come across the river, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander. Same Hebrew word, sar of the army of the Lord. Now I have come, and Joshua fell on the face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to a servant? And the commander, same Hebrew word, sar, of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And notice Joshua did so. Despite Joshua's long military experiences, he had never had to attack a fortified city like Jericho, which would no doubt be a long siege. And so as he was pondering that, we're told here, he's realizing that they've crossed the Jordan now. There's no return. There's no retreat. The people are there. He's responsible for leading. And as he is pondering those heavy thoughts, they don't have the experience. They don't have the equipment. Um, we discover that Joshua was startled as he lifted up his eyes and standing opposite of him was this stranger with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua, it says here, instinctively challenged the stranger saying, who goes there, friend or foe? And the response of that stranger was very revealing. You look at verse 14. He said, no, but I am the commander, Sar, of the Lord's army here. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? who is this commander of the army of the Lord? And, and why does Joshua feel this immediate need to, to bow down and worship him? It's clear to me as I study the scriptures here that Joshua knew he was standing face to face with none other than a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the question that, uh, that Joshua asked, what does my Lord say to his servant, should be asked of all of us. But that is an entirely different sermon for another day in and of itself. For now, I wanted you to see the contrast here and note that the Hebrew word sar translated prince back in Isaiah 9, 6 is translated here in Deuteronomy 5 as a commander, a commander. Let's continue to unpack this title, Prince of Peace, by talking a little bit about the word peace, 
which is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. And in its verbal form, the word shalom carries the meaning of a, rest a restoration, a restoring of something that is broken to a wholeness. And it's assumed that if something is broken, it's fractured or it's not right, there is a need for restoration. And I believe the title here implies that the work of Jesus, pictured here as a great commander, will be to go to war to restore something that is broken. And we all know the story of, uh, of how Jesus grew up. He, he, he was able to go to the cross for us. You know, so often we look at and perceive Christ as a gentle shepherd. And that's rightly so. There's nothing wrong with that. After all, he is and he, is, he, he performs the acts of a, a shepherd. And especially during Christmas, I think we tend to think of Jesus as this fragile little baby in a manger. But, uh, and, and I couldn't help but thinking, as I saw this comparison here, I tried to imagine this week how Mary and Joseph must have studied that child when it came to them in Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. And if the angels were right, and, 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 and it had to be, here in the starlight, they were uh, looking at a long-awaited Messiah who had been the subject of uh, poems and songs and dreams and and hopes for some thousand years. It must have been really hard, I think, for them to comprehend or imagine the reality of such a manifestation of a personification of, of the Messiah as they looked at that tiny baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger. They were gifted with the opportunity to see the Messiah come into the world as a baby. With that understanding of the Prince of Peace, I want to talk now, as I started a moment ago, with the question, what kind of peace did the prince, the commander of the Lord, uh, what did he go to war to bring into the world that first advent? What exactly is this Christmas peace that we're celebrating? What's the primary focus? I want to start by saying what it isn't. First, I believe the primary focus of Christian pe uh, Christmas peace is not political or materialist or, or, or material. I had trouble with this word earlier, too. Maybe materialist military, okay? Sorry. Boy, the tongue isn't working. And as I started thinking about this, I was reminded of something I saw recently on the History Channel on an evening on December 24, 1914. It was during that time a remarkable event occurred, took place among the German and the British soldiers who occupied had cold and wet and muddy trenches along the western front of World War I. It seems that at that time, on Christmas Eve, the Germans set up a Christmas tree and began to sing Christmas carols. In response, the British soldiers began singing carols themselves, and that led to an exchange of Christmas greetings and wishes across the trenches. And astonishingly, shortly after that, the Germans proposed a Christmas truce, and the British truce agreed. And as a result, if you can imagine this, in the heat of battle, some six months into the battle now, enemy soldiers on both sides of the trenches began to nervously climb out of their trenches and meeting in the middle of that barbed wire, barbed wire filled area, the no man's land as they called it, uh, that separated them, they began to exchange gifts, Christmas gifts, chocolate and cake and cognac and postcards and newspapers and tobacco. And if I understand correctly, at least one soccer match took place between the English and the German troops' first World Cup here, with the, with the Germans winning three to two. <laughs> Writing home, 
about this astonishing event to his family, one British soldier wrote this. I found this letter that he had written. That while you were eating your turkey, I was talking and shaking hands with the very men I had been trying to kill just a few hours before. But this Christmas truce did not last. In fact, within 12 hours, they were back fighting, and that war went on to drag out for another four years, and it proved to be one of the most bloody conflicts up to date at that time. And thus, I do not believe when we talk about Christmas peace, we're talking about political or military peace. That was not obviously Jesus' primary or immediate goal that first advent. By the way, let me remind you that Jesus himself warns us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, that before the end of this world, we should expect more wars and rumors of wars and violence. That doesn't mean, however, that Christians shouldn't be seeking uh, peace because according to Matthew chapter 5, which we studied a few weeks ago, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We know ultimately, and we'll talk about this in just a few minutes, that in the end, uh, Christ will bring an end to all violence and there will be peace on the earth. However, for now, please understand as we look at Christmas peace here that I do not believe that that was the immediate or primary or initial goal of the peace that Christ brought that first Christmas, that first Advent. The second thing I would say is the primary focus of Christmas peace is not internal. It is not internal. You know, Jesus' life was many things. But as I look at his life, I, I see one thing. It wasn't stress-free. It wasn't one of the things that characterized his life. And so the message of Jesus is not just, hey, love yourself more, or rid yourself of all the things that bum you out, or try to think positive, happy thoughts. That's sometimes what I hear when I hear Christmas and Christmas peace. Now, is, you know, is it possible, according to Philippians 4, 7, that as Christians that we can enjoy a peace that surpasses understanding as we have a relationship with Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But this internal peace is not what I believe to be the primary or the immediate focus of Jesus' first advent. Okay? Third, the primary focus of Christmas peace is not, in my opinion, relational. It is not relational. And by that I mean Christmas peace isn't primarily everyone just kind of getting along with each other, your family forgetting all the things that annoy you about each other for that day. Okay? Several years ago, I remember seeing a Peanuts comic strip in which Lucy walked up to Charlie Brown, which she often did, the day or two before Christmas. She said, look, Charlie, Charlie Brown, since it's Christmas, I suggest we lay aside all our differences and be friends for this season of the year. And Charlie Brown was ecstatic, as you can imagine. And he said, that's a great idea, Lucy. But what, why does it have to be just this time of the year? Why don't we be friends all year long? To which only Lucy could respond, what are you, some kind of a fanatic or something, Charlie? You know, yes, Christmas season is one in which family ties and friendships and relationships are emphasized and appreciated. And thus, uh, activities that we do with our families and with our friends, they do create at Christmas time a heightened sense of togetherness. And I hope for everyone in this room that they will experience that kind of peace. For the peace of God that Jesus gives opens up a floodgate of experiential peace. Listen as we listen to Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So it's important that we do 
have and experience this peace that we live with. But while the gospel can and does bring families together and friends together and gives us the power to have peace and forgive one another, I do not believe that the relational peace was the primary or the initial reason that Jesus' first event occurred. Now, I know uh, as I thought about this when I got to this point, this has been kind of a challenging message to listen to. It's but I want to encourage you to stay with me because Christmas peace, I hope to show you, is much bigger and far better than anything this world has to offer. Because as we talk about the primary focus on a positive side of Christmas peace, we see that it involves peace with God. It's a reconciliation with God. That's what the emphasis I want to submit to you today is of the Christmas peace that we are celebrating. On that first Christmas, the curtains were pulled back the story of redemption was unfolding right before the eyes of everyone. The Son of God, the living Son of God, God in the flesh, was living amongst us. And Jesus didn't come just to live among us, understand that. He came to redeem. He came with the purpose of restoring what sin had so broken. He came to be a Savior. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We know that from Scripture. And from that time on, all human beings, you and me included, have carried a sinful, disobedient nature within our hearts that puts us at opposition with God. We read about that rebellion in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Likewise, Romans 3, just in case we were wondering, makes no exceptions here. It says, for all have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages for those sins, according to Romans 6, 23, is death. And we're not just talking physical death, although that's included, for everyone dies physically, believers and unbelievers alike. We're talking here of death, the spoken here in Romans 6, 23, and Romans 5, 12, is a spiritual death, which is far greater in significance, for it is an eternal separation of our soul from a holy God. The bottom line is that a man without Christ, according to the scriptures, is spiritually dead. His mind is governed by the flesh, which is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor does he have a desire to do so. And gratefully, here's the message and the hope of Christmas. Here's the peace that Christmas Advent first brought. The mercy and grace of God prevailed. The Bible, you see, tells us that in his great love for us, God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for my sin and my rebellion, yours as well. Romans 5.8 tells us in God's word, but God demonstrated, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that word for literally means as our substitute in our place and for our sins. And praise God by placing our trust in Jesus and the work that he did for us on the cross. Not only does God mercifully withdraw, uh, withhold the judgment and the punishment that we so deserve because of our sin. He also, this blows my mind, grants us instead the unbelievable gifts of his righteousness, his forgiveness, his salvation, and the free gift of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how he could do that, a holy and righteous God. For our sake, it says, God made him to be sin, talking about Christ who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Likewise, in John 3.16, we're told, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Earlier, I spoke of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, pointing to the wages of our sin. But I love the way that verse goes on to finish. Here's what it says. For the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that, folks, is what I believe to be the primary focus or the emphasis of the peace of Christmas. Although you and I don't deserve it, God himself took the initiative in pursuing peace with us by sending his holy and righteous son, his crucifixion paid for my sins and your sins and everyone who will trust in him and his resurrection secures or guarantees our justification before God. That's a fancy word that means God looks at us in Christ and declares us righteous and pure and perfect and acceptable at peace with God. And as a result, God's pleasure and God's peace now reside or rest upon those who have received God's Son as their Savior by faith. Isn't that an awesome story? Hallelujah. In Christ, we are no longer enemies, but beloved children of God. What an awesome Savior we have. Romans 5.10 tells us this, for if while we were enemies, those are pretty strong words, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I love Colossians 1, 22, 21, and 22. Here, listen to this. Notice the contrast. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by the flesh, by his death, in order to present you. Listen to this. This is how God sees you in Jesus. In order to present you as holy and blameless above reproach before him. I love the way Pastor Tim Keller paints what we were before Jesus. Here's what he said. The primary condition of our hearts is not ignorance so that we need education, nor is it indifference so that we need motivation, but rather hostility so that we need reconciliation. And only God could initiate that reconciliation. Now, it occurred to me in the sermon preparation at this point that this is Christmas. And many of you who are probably like me thinking about that gift that you want to buy for that friend or that family member. We're trying our best to find that perfect gift, right? But what is a perfect gift? I don't know the resource I got this from, but I heard at one time that the perfect gift is considered a perfect gift when it meets three criteria. Let me share those with you so you all get perfect gifts this Christmas for your friends and family. Here you go. First, the gift should reflect the one who gives it. The gift should reflect the one who gives it. Second, the gift should reflect the knowledge of the one who receives it. In other words, knowledge of their needs, their desires, their tastes, and so forth. You're looking out for them. And third, that gift should be of a nature or a quality that it holds its value as time goes on. And here's the thing. Think about this with me, will you? As we think about the peace of Christmas, God's gift of Jesus meets all the criteria of a perfect gift. First, Jesus reflects the one who gave him. He reflects God's love and every aspect of God perfectly. Listen to what Hebrews 1 verse 3 declares about Jesus. He is the radiance, not a reflection, but the radiance, an exact representation of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus his perfect reflection of the one who gave him. Second, in giving us Jesus, 
God reflects a genuine knowledge of our needs. Let me remind you that when Joseph was wrestling about all the decision about Jesus, the angel told him, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And third, I believe Jesus is the perfect gift because he is the gift that never loses his value, our worth. In fact, God's love for us in Christ never fades. It never diminishes, and it never weakens. That's our Savior for us today. It's not surprising, therefore, as Paul was thinking about and reflecting on this awesome gift that God gave to us in Jesus' Son. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, he cried out almost breathlessly with great joy, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Can we say that? Thanks be to God. Come on together, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so my hope and my prayer today in sharing all this with you is that if you have not already done so, that you will receive God's gift, this precious gift that God has, this perfect gift that God has given you this Christmas season. Jesus, you see, came and he gave his life that we might be set free from the bondage and the burden of sin that we all had and have but also to secure peace between us and a holy and righteous God. I ask you, I pause and ask, have you done that? Have you truly done that? Have you recognized your sinfulness and a need for Savior, a Savior, and placed your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins? If not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 tells us, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And folks, that I believe is the first step in the road to peace. We need to accept this gift that God provided. There's no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Wrapping up our time in the Word of God, let me reiterate, because I don't want us to miss this, that the primary need we have is peace with God. And I believe that's the main emphasis of Christ's first event, the Prince of Peace makes that possible. There's no other way to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus. And he came that first event to provide that, that first Christmas. But let me also say that that same Prince of Peace is coming again. That's another thing that we celebrate at Christmas, a second advent. And when he does, he will, as the angels declare at his birth, fulfill the promise of peace, true peace on earth. Let me put up on the screens Isaiah 9, 7. We read Isaiah 9, 6 earlier. Here's what he goes on to say. Again, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, the zeal of the Lord, the host, will do this. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. When Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, says Isaiah here, he will establish all these things we just talked about, political, relational, internal peace, uh, internal peace forever. And as a result, folks, there will be no more wars, no more corrupt leaders, no more coups, no more terrorism. There'll be no need for a military. There'll be no need for politicians, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, you name it. There'll be no racism, there'll be no divorce, there'll be no abuse, there'll be no abandonment, isolation, estrangement, relationships, struggles, and self-loathing. And I love what Revelation 21 tells us in verse 4. There'll be no more tears, no more death, 
No more mourning, no more crying or pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. And thus all that will remain, as Pastor Mike reminded us last week as he concluded, is goodness, love, life, joy, peace, beauty, justice, blessedness, and everything that is pure. Because of Jesus' victory through the cross, a new earth and new heaven will be created and established where sin and its curse, listen, will be fully done away with, finally fully and done away with. A kingdom where Jesus Christ, our King, will rule in perfect power, love, goodness, along with those of us who belong to him forever, forever. And as we wrap up our time together here, in just a moment, we're going to sing about that time. But let me go ahead and pray together. I pray that if anyone is here today, after the service, you'll come up and talk to me or Pastor Mike or any of the other pastors. Please don't leave here today without the assurance that you have put your trust in Jesus and that you will spend eternity with him. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for the genuine peace of Christmas that your son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that those who put their trust in you will be uh, completely forgiven. Lord, that will be uh, given the righteous and forgiveness that only Christ uh, can provide. Thank you that our Savior lived, that he came, and he died in our place and for our sins. And I pray if there's even one person here today that doesn't have the peace of knowing that they have a relationship with you, they won't leave here today without making sure of that. Thank you, Father, for those of us who know you, that uh, we won't be just caught up in all the glitter of Christmas. It's a wonderful time of the year. It's festive. But, Lord, help us not to forget what, what, what it costs you, Lord, to give us the peace that you promise. And, Lord, may we exhibit that peace wherever we go and everyone we speak to. Thank you, Father, for this hope and peace we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.